Hi everybody! After a one month hiatus, the team is well rested and so happy to have you back for a new episode of A Minder. As part of our August 2022 series, today we have papers on behavioral and cognitive changes in Alzheimer's disease. We've got our usual sections such as rodent models and sleep, but we also have some new topics, including cognitive reserve and even a paper on virtual reality. You're in for a treat today, so definitely stick around and we'll get started shortly. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. To start things off, we'll go with our usual order of studies that involve behavioral deficits in Alzheimer's disease, followed by those that discuss the more cognitive side of the disease. We're now releasing new episodes every Monday and Wednesday, so stay on the watch for all your favorite topics. Remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for our latest updates. And feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or Spotify. We would really appreciate it as it would help us reach more listeners who would benefit from the show. If there's a specific AD topic that you're interested in hearing about but wasn't covered this month, why not join the podcast and potentially host it yourself? If you're interested in joining the Aminder team, send us your CV at aminderpodcast at gmail.com and we can work together on finding a suitable position for you. Lastly, remember that you can access our complete bibliography in the episode notes if you're interested in any of the papers covered today. And just a quick reminder that I'll only be giving an objective snapshot of the following papers from the information provided in the abstracts, so you'll need to look up the original papers to check the integrity or specific methods used in these studies. And with that, let's get started with today's episode. We have a total of 10 papers today, with an even 50-50 split between the behavioral and cognitive domains, separated by a brief break in between the two sections. To begin, We'll go over one paper that uses a rat model of AD, followed by two studies on sleep, and then a couple papers that use slightly more unconventional methods to study behavior in AD patients. Paper number one is titled, Task-Dependent Learning and Memory Deficits in the Transgenic F344AD Rat Model of Alzheimer's Disease, Three Key Time Points Through Middle Age in Females. It was published in Scientific Reports by co-first authors Bernaud and Boulang, and last author Bimont Nelson, all from Arizona State University. Here, the authors characterize the TGF344 rat model of AD by measuring spatial learning and memory performance at the 6, 9, and 12-month stages. It's important to note that they only looked at female rats for this study, which is interesting to me as a fellow researcher in behavioral neuroscience, as males tend to be the more common choice. The authors used the water radial arm maze, a test of both working and reference memory, and found impairments in the AD rats at 6 and 12 months, but not at 9 months. They also used the infamous Morris maze, which measures spatial reference memory and found deficits in the AD rats at all three time points. They also measured A-beta expression using Western blot and found an age-dependent increase in frontal cortex, entorhinal cortex, and dorsal hippocampus in the transgenic rats. These age-specific impairments in behavior and pathology suggest that the 9-month time point 
may be a critical period in female TGF344 rats. Next up, our sleep section. We have two short summaries on sleep in the context of AD, the first one being cortical waste clearance in normal and restricted sleep with potential runaway tau buildup in Alzheimer's disease. This one is also from scientific reports by first author Tekie and last author Postnova from the University of Sydney. This study is a little bit beyond what we normally cover in the Cognitive and Behavioral Changes episodes, but it gets into glymphatic waste clearance and how it drives the sleep-wake cycle. There isn't much detail given in the abstract, but the authors discuss a new model that uses data on clearance and waste obstruction levels during sleep to reproduce sleep-wake cycles and predict sleep dynamics, such as sleep deprivation and chronic sleep restriction. A quick snapshot of their findings shows that increased waste production or impaired clearance can predict elevated tau buildup. While this tau accumulation follows the timeline for AD pathology development, the authors claim that their model can be applied to a number of diseases where glymphatic clearance may play a role. Our next sleep study, or paper number three, is titled Correlations Between Sleep Disturbance and Brain Structures Associated with Neurodegeneration in the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center Uniform Dataset. It is from the Journal of Clinical Neuroscience by first author Burke and last author Dukoski, both from Florida. This study explored the relationship between sleep disturbance, brain structure volumes, and cognitive status. As mentioned in the title, Data was taken from the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center Uniform Dataset, with a sample size of around 1,500 patients, and one question from the Neuropsychiatric Inventory Questionnaire was used to measure sleep disturbance. The authors found that several ventricle regions and total cerebrospinal fluid volume were higher in subjects with sleep disturbance. They also found decreased volumes in several regions for this cohort, including the hippocampus and frontal and temporal lobes. Lastly, the association between cognitive status and lateral ventricular volumes seemed to depend on sleep disturbance. These results highlight the importance of getting good quality sleep and suggest that disrupted sleep may contribute to atrophy across several brain regions in the context of AD. This next one is quite interesting as it looks into dexterity in individuals with mild cognitive impairment, or MCI. Paper number four is from the journal Laterality and is called Reduction in Manual Asymmetry and Decline in Fine Manual Dexterity in Right-Handed Older Adults with Mild Cognitive Impairment. It's by first author Vasilenko and last author Rodriguez Aranda, who are from Norway. Hand function is a topic that is rarely discussed in the context of MCI. This study entails a kinematic analysis of single hand movements in 41 MCI patients and 50 healthy controls performing the Purdue pegboard test. It's not surprising that kinematics for grasping and inserting were impaired in the MCI patients. However, reaching and transport measures were actually superior in this group. From the laterality index assessment, kinematics in reaching and transport were also more symmetrical in MCI patients. The authors suggest that fine manual dexterity is deteriorated and symmetrical movements are enhanced in MCI. For our last paper in the behavioral changes section, we have a really cool study that uses virtual reality in AD patients to predict spatial memory in the real world. Paper number five has the title, 
predicting real-world spatial disorientation in Alzheimer's disease patients using virtual reality navigation tests. This paper is from Scientific Reports by first author Puthuseri Paddy and last author Hornberger, who are both from the University of East Anglia in the UK. To assess the extent of spatial disorientation in AD, the study used virtual reality to evaluate spatial navigation abilities in AD patients and attempted to identify those at risk for spatial disorientation in the community based on their VR results. Participants included 16 community-dwelling AD patients and 21 controls. You'll have to look up these VR tests for more details on how they work, but the authors used the Virtual Supermarket Test and the Sea Hero Quest, which were used to test egocentric and allocentric navigation abilities in the VR environment. They also used the Detour Navigation Test in the actual community as another navigation assessment. Interestingly, AD patients were impaired on all three tests, and wayfinding distance and duration from the Sea Hero Quest predicted disorientation scores on the detour navigation test in the patient group. That being said, these VR measures were not able to predict which patients were at highest risk of spatial disorientation, and so the authors vouch for more VR-based studies that focus on identifying AD patients at risk of experiencing spatial disorientation in the real world. That's it for the papers that focus on behavioral changes in AD. Let's take a quick break here before moving on with the rest of the episode. Hi, dear listener. This is Nyla, host and co-founder here at Aminder. I've been hosting with the team since 2020, and not only has this taught me a lot about Alzheimer's disease, but I've also learned a lot about my inability to articulate words and to keep a consistent distance from the microphone. I apologize for that. But overall, it's been a really rewarding experience and one that we would love to share with you. If you'd like to take a deep dive into Alzheimer's research and science communication, then I've got good news for you. We're currently recruiting new hosts and content creators for the podcast. Just email us at aminderpodcast at gmail.com or contact us through our social media pages and tell us a little bit about yourself. Looking forward to working with you soon. Nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years, and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia, and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Welcome back, everyone. We just have five papers left in this shorter episode, with the first four on cognitive changes in AD, and the last one with more of a focus on psychiatric deficits. These first three studies all feature the cognitive reserve hypothesis, which is the idea that some people can tolerate age related brain changes or AD related pathology and maintain cognitive function better than others. Paper number six is titled, Social Networks and Cognitive Reserve. Network structure moderates the association between amygdalar volume and cognitive outcomes. This one is from the Journal of Gerontology, Series B, Psychological Sciences and Social Sciences, by first author Perry and last author Apostolova, both of which are from Indiana University in the U.S. 
This paper dives into the topic of social networks, which in this context literally refers to the social hub that people interact with on a regular basis. The authors explore whether the social network of people with AD is associated with their cognitive function and amygdala size. The amygdala is important in this context due to its involvement in social-emotional processing. Data from over 150 subjects was taken from the social networks in Alzheimer's disease study and the Indiana Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The FEN-X social network battery was used to measure social network attributes and the Montreal Cognitive Assessment used to assess cognitive function. Participants that were better at taking on multiple social roles and subgroups within their networks showed better cognitive function. In addition, social networks moderated the link between cognitive function and amygdala volume, as measured through MRI. From their findings, it would seem that AD patients who engaged in diverse social network groups were better protected from the otherwise expected cognitive impairments resulting from a loss in amygdala volume. The key message here is that keeping an array of social relationships could help promote one's cognitive reserve. In our next paper, the authors also looked at cognitive reserve, which again describes individual differences in resilience to neurodegeneration, but they related its effects to cortical structure. Paper number seven is called Cognitive Reserve Modulates Brain Structure and Cortical Architecture in the Alzheimer's Disease. It's from the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, from first author Sarah and last author Bozzali, who are both from Italy. Nearly 300 participants were used in the study, including patients with AD, those with MCI due to AD, also known as amnestic MCI, and healthy controls. All participants completed neuropsychological assessment and MRI. Years of formal education were used as a measure of cognitive reserve, where subjects were then divided into high and low cognitive reserve groups. They report on quite a few interesting findings, but I'll just go over some of the key points here. AD patients with high cognitive reserve showed reduced cortical thickness in several brain regions when compared to those with low cognitive reserve. Amnestic MCI patients with high cognitive reserve also showed reduced cortical thickness, specifically in the right temporal and left prefrontal lobe, as well as a positive correlation between cortical measures and memory. In summary, it seems like the cognitive reserve only has an effect on cortical architecture at the pre-dementia stage. These results support the idea that the amnestic MCI stage is a limited time window for cognitive reserve modulation. Just three more papers to go, everyone. Paper number eight is an MRI study from the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease titled Quantitative MRI Evidence for Cognitive Reserve in Healthy Elders and Prodromal Alzheimer's Disease. It's from first author Fingerhut and last author Hosseini, both from Stanford University School of Medicine. Cognitive reserve has been a really popular topic in this episode. Here we specifically look at cognitive reserve derived from one's education or occupation and its effects on white matter tracts in amnestic MCI. The study included 35 amnestic MCI patients and 28 healthy elderly controls, and cognitive reserve scores were generated from their educational and occupational complexity ratings. The authors used quantitative MRI and multi-shell diffusion MRI to measure macromolecular tissue volume along major white matter tracts. In the amnestic MCI group, higher cognitive reserve was linked to lower tissue volume 
in regions including the dorsal cingulum and the right superior longitudinal fasciculus tracts. On the other hand, in healthy controls, higher cognitive reserve was correlated with higher tissue volume in the right parahippocampal cingulum and left superior longitudinal fasciculus. These findings suggest that the effects of cognitive reserve on white matter tract integrity likely differs in prodromal AD patients compared to healthy controls. I know that was a lot. Um, We're on our second last paper of the episode now, and we have a study on face processing in AD. Paper number nine is called Empathy of Individuals with Alzheimer's Disease Toward Other AD Patients. This paper was published in the Journal of Clinical and Experimental Neuropsychology by first author El Haj and last author Galouche, both of which are from France. Now, this paper was quite unique as the purpose was to determine whether patients with AD show higher empathy towards others with AD. Another aim was to test whether empathy could enhance recognition of these faces. 27 mild AD patients and 30 healthy controls were asked to retain images of faces showing either healthy people or people with AD. They also rated their empathy levels towards each face. The authors found that AD participants reported higher empathy for AD-labeled faces as compared to healthy faces, but their recognition ability was similar for either category. While the healthy controls also reported higher empathy for the AD-labeled faces, this group showed better recognition for healthy faces than the AD-labeled ones. To sum up, their findings suggest that empathy does not have an effect on face recognition in AD. However, mild AD patients can show significantly more empathy towards people with the same medical condition. And finally, for our last paper of the episode, with a focus on psychiatric disturbances in AD, number 10 is titled Association Between Depression, Gender, and Alzheimer's Neuropathology in Older Adults Without Dementia, and it was published in the International Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. The paper was written by first author Kim and last author Gallagher, both of which are from our very own Sunnybrook Research Institute in Toronto, Ontario in Canada. The goal of this study was to determine whether depression is linked to AD pathology and whether sex plays a role in this relationship. In their cross-sectional design, the authors included over 400 older adults without dementia, either with normal cognition or MCI, who had an autopsy within one year of their last clinic visit as part of the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center database. Specifically, they looked at whether history of depression was correlated with amyloid or tau neuropathology beyond the neocortex. Participants who had depression only within the previous two years showed greater amyloid spread than those without a history of depression. Interestingly, this relationship did not depend on the sex of the participants. To conclude, late-life depression appears to be associated with spread of amyloid pathology into allocortical and subcortical regions, a marker of AD neuropathology. And we've made it to the end. That's all I have for you guys today in our August 2022 Cognitive and Behavioral Changes in AD episode. I hope you learned something new and that this was helpful for you and your research. Remember that you can look up any of the papers covered today in our full bibliography that we've prepared for you in the episode notes. 
If you enjoyed the topics we covered today, you might want to check out Nihilus' episode on prevention and intervention strategies for AD, which will be released in a couple days. I'd like to thank the CCNA for sponsoring the podcast, the sorting and management team for working so efficiently on organizing these episodes, Ellen Kosh for editing the script, Michelle for editing the recording, and Sarah for making the bibliography. As usual, the music you're hearing now was put together by Anusha, and you can find more of her content on YouTube at AK Music or on SoundCloud under Anusha Kamesh. Lastly, thank you all so much for joining me in today's episode. We hope you find this podcast useful and accessible, and we look forward to having you back soon. Bye for now.